I started to recognize that while I might personally be non-religious, I don't exist in a vacuum away from religion and away from faith. Um, so I, I mean, I do interfaith work, even though I'm non-religious, because I recognize that religion is this really powerful force in our communities and in our society. And I want to be a part of helping that cultural influence be one that is collaborative, that does work toward the common good and bring people together. That's Katie Gordon, program manager of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, as well as Interfaith Services Coordinator with the Division of Inclusion and Equity at Grand Valley State University. Today we hear from Katie about the current state of religious relations in America and what it means to promote interfaith understanding. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. This week's guest, Katie Gordon, works to promote interfaith understanding at a time when religious relations in America seem particularly fraught. Just one example, of course, is the president's recent immigration ban, or what's often called his Muslim ban. Katie Gordon addresses that particular issue. She also describes what the promotion of interfaith understanding and abstraction means on the ground in practice. Katie also explores a wide range of matters having to do with faith in 21st century America. In what ways are millennials religious or secular, different than their parents, for instance? How will the emergent conception of identity as intersectional, that is, as composed of overlapping, complex, and interdependent categories of identity, such as gender and race, how will that affect the way Americans think about religion and how they pursue interfaith understanding? And what, then, will the future of religion and interreligious relations look like in America? All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Katie Gordon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Your program manager, Katie, of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, as well as the Interfaith Services Coordinator with the Division of Inclusion and Equity at Grand Valley State University. Those sound like two sort of large roles, but what unites them is this notion of interfaith. My first question is, what do you do at Kaufman and at Grand Valley? What's your mission and the mission of your organization? Yeah, so with both of my roles, my goal is to promote interfaith understanding and respect in our community and on our campus. Um, So those are kind of big abstract ideas that might sound good, um, but really when it comes down to it, there's a lot of um, relationship building and promoting programs and opportunities for people to come together around the differences that we hold, whether they be religiously, philosophically, or based in our secular identities. Um, And so with both positions, what I do is I work with students or community members, organizations, congregations uh, from all different backgrounds and create this space where all of those people from different pockets of our community or different pockets of our campus can come together and uh, promote, you know, not only understanding, but also cooperation across our differences. So I have a a question about this, like, notion of cooperation. I I think, you know, I think here I'm just going to play a kind of naive character. um, But but I think if I were someone who had never heard of the promotion of interfaith understanding, and if I were someone who came from a generally perhaps secular or otherwise non-affiliated background, if Mm -hmm. I heard the phrase... um, interfaith understanding I might have in mind like 
the merging of religious practices and traditions into a kind of organic whole. So, so what is the aim, if there's one ultimate aim to interfaith? Is it for people of different religions to agree on certain core questions of faith, or is it for them simply to, to learn how to live peacefully and happily together? Yeah, I mean, we often say that interfaith is not about agreement, but it's about understanding. So at the end of the day, we don't need to walk away from an interfaith program under um, having the same belief in something, um, but just coming to an understanding about where the other person's belief might come from. Uh, so, you know, an idea that we often use uh, with the Kaufman Interfaith Institute is this idea of thick dialogue instead of thin dialogue. So when we're bringing together people who hold different beliefs um, and come from different traditions, we don't want them to water down their beliefs or ideas. We want them to bring the richness of their uh, truth claims or of their beliefs about um, their the ultimate kind of reality of the universe and mm. their role in it. Um, we want to bring that messiness and that uniqueness to the table. And we believe that that actually, um, you know, enriches and creates a deeper conversation for us. Um, so we definitely emphasize that we want thick dialogue rather than thin dialogue. Um, but I think, I mean, you kind of got to the, the challenge of interfaith as a, the language that we use. People hear interfaith, they hear the word faith, and they're like, well, that's, that's for people of faith. And I don't have a faith if I'm secular um, or if I'm even a part of certain religious traditions. Faith is not a part of the equation for me. Um, and so while that's, I think, the language of interfaith sometimes holds us back, um, we try to create a very expansive idea of what interfaith includes. So we're always very intentional about saying interfaith is not just for um, people of faith traditions, but it's for any religious, spiritual, or secular identities and traditions that are interested in building understanding and cooperation uh, toward a common good. So you said something um, uh, really interesting just a few moments ago, and I've just been—I I just wondered really quickly how you do it. Um, the, so I, I guess my my question is practical or it's about your methods um you, you said you, you you want people to come in to the sort of interfaith interaction with their faith and all of its messiness and like complexity and thickness yeah and, and i can imagine that would be hard to say get two people from perhaps radically different faiths to come in in that kind of perhaps unguarded manner that sort of open manner. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you promote that? Yeah. So what's really important for us when we are asking people to come into spaces or dialogues where something, you know, deep within them that they might not often share with strangers is coming to the forefront. Um, what's important for us is creating very intentional kind of guidelines for what that space looks like. Um, so those kind of rules or guidelines for engagement have developed over time. Um, on campus, we often call them safe space or brave space rules. Um, and in the community, we have kind of guidelines for dialogue uh, that we try to seek some sort of collective agreement on. But within all of those um, spaces, what we have are kind of some go-to uh rules for engagement. So under the understanding, coming to the understanding that we 
do not proselytize. We don't seek to convert or change anyone's ideas in this space. So everyone can feel free to share their own beliefs in that space and, and under the understanding that, that they won't be judged or converted or sought to convert from. Um, we encourage people to think about the importance of using I statements and avoiding generalizations. So when you speak, you don't speak representing an entire tradition, but your own experience of that tradition. And another understanding that's important for us is what uh, in the in certain circles we've called kind of an amended Vegas rule. So the Vegas rule is like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The version of that for interfaith is that what happens in these shared spaces that sometimes become deeply honest and personal, um, what happens there, what's shared there, stays there. But what's important about that is that we also want to say what's learned there leaves there. So the personal stories that you hear from people, um, you know, those should stay in the spaces, I think, just out of respect to that person and, and the vulnerability uh, that they brought to that space. But maybe the lesson that you take from their story can leave that room. And that's something that you can bring with you into your own community. So I have, I have a sort of general question. Um, why would someone, especially if, if it, if like entering this sort of interfaith, uh, sort of interfaith interaction, like if, if it does require a great deal of, um, in a sense, vulnerability, uh, why would, why would someone already sort of in a faith tradition want to enter an interfaith context? What do, what do you think generally um, uh, people think they would gain from it? Or what do you think that they, they usually feel like they can give to the conversation? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the reasons that we see most people coming into interfaith spaces is out of a conviction that they have within their own faith tradition. So I'm thinking particularly of members of the Christian community who take seriously the idea that we should come to know and understand our and love our neighbors. Um, I think out of that idea of loving our neighbors, uh, you know, people who are Christian are motivated to meet their neighbors. And interfaith spaces are often kind of the easiest go-to spaces, the Christian community for churches to get to know their Muslim neighbors, their Jewish neighbors, their non-religious Sikh, Hindu neighbors, um, etc. And so I think it comes out of a conviction, you know, and, and that value of getting to know and caring for the stranger or the neighbor in your own tradition. Um, but also, I think that there's a lot to keep people around for interfaith. So once they're there, once they enter into that space, they see not only how much they can learn about other traditions, but in the process, you learn a lot about your own beliefs and your own tradition as well. Um, when you're kind of going through and asking someone questions about, well, you know, as a Jewish person, what do you think about this? Or coming from the Hindu perspective, what is your belief on this? Um, when you ask those questions, I think you inherently are kind of asking yourself that question as well. And, and you're reflecting more deeply about, well, how would, how would I answer that? Or... Um, what would be my answer, you know, to to something that another person is asking? And so interfaith spaces become 
inherently a space where you do a lot of self-discovery as well. Well, Katie, you work, as I said, you work at Grand Valley State University primarily, uh, though I know you also go and give talks and work and collaborate elsewhere. Um, Grand Valley, for for listeners uh, who don't know, is in West Michigan, and it's in a part of West Michigan that's uh, primarily Christian. What's it like doing your work in that area? What unique challenges do you think students or community members, Christian or perhaps especially non-Christian, face in that particular context? Yeah, so it is a really unique context that we're doing interfaith work in here. Um, it is predominantly Christian, and and the traditions within that that are present or the denominations um, tend to be the more reformed and conservative traditions. Um, and so our culture in West Michigan and on the various campuses that we have in Grand Rapids in West Michigan um, tend to be a more kind of conservative strand of Christianity. Um, and I think that that's kind of the dominant narrative that exists. Like people hear about faith or religion in Grand Rapids and they think of the CRC, which is the Christian Reformed Church, or the RCA, which is the Reformed Church of America. And they have like certain ideas of what religion is in our community. And I think with that comes a unique opportunity, but also a unique challenge. So a lot of um, coming from my own perspective, which is being a non-religious person. So I, I was raised Christian. I was raised Catholic, but I no longer really identify with that. I definitely felt this sense of being an outsider when I moved to Grand Rapids. I wasn't, I didn't have an answer when people asked me what church I go to. Um, and I also started to sense that uh, faith became something that's so important in certain people's lives um, that it, it was almost something that other parts of the community had to respond to in a way. So if you were secular, you were like really secular. Um, and you made a point about that. And I, I think that that divide between religious and secular in our community has almost been a stronger that divide than between those who are all uh, religious. And so I think it was relatively easy to get Abrahamic dialogue going, which is Jewish, Christian, Muslim dialogue, but it was much more challenging to have dialogue between the religious and secular community in Grand Rapids. And, you know, for me coming at it from a non-religious perspective, of course, that's, I think that's what I've noticed most uh, prominently. So I want to ask just a quick question um, about the sort of political situation um, in, in in your work and in the context of interfaith right now before we move on to some other topics. I know your function isn't political, um, and the work you do isn't political in the sort of democratic, Republican sense, but I do want to get your right. take on the ways sort of, on the ways religious relations in this country and in Grand Rapids have changed in the wake of election 2016 and the president's um, immigration ban. What have you been seeing both in West Michigan and across the country in the past month or so? Yeah. So personally, I wouldn't say that my work isn't political, but it my work isn't partisan. Um, but I think that religious identity has become political. So that's, you know, it's a reality that we can't really ignore in our work anymore. Um, but the, the overall climate, uh, you know, since Trump has been elected and become president, um, 
there there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety in a lot of the religious communities that we work with, uh, particularly the minority religious communities across uh, this across the country. I'm thinking of the Muslim community, Jewish community, he, Sikh and Hindu communities um, are experiencing even more, uh, you know, targeted uh, hate crimes and religious discrimination pretty overtly in communities across the United States. And I think to an extent that has always existed, but it hasn't been given um, such a platform, I think, in previous years, where now there are, you know, these national policies like the immigration ban that are being proposed that that bring religious identity into the conversation in a very, um, very obvious and very significant way. And so it's not only, you know, the policies that are affecting this, I think, but it's also allowing uh, more harmful rhetoric to take place. Um, the election, uh, the whole election itself throughout 2015 and 16 um, brought Islamophobia into, I think, a new phase where um, hate crimes and discrimination against Muslims and people who are perceived to be Muslims uh, increased throughout 2016. And we've seen that continue in 2017. Um, Anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish uh, incidents have also continued in 2017. So it's, you know, I think the state of our political climate has really caused us and the interfaith movement to have to respond to these very political issues because members of our community are being sometimes explicitly threatened by these policies. So you, you mentioned right at the beginning of your answer that, um, that, that you thought that the interfaith movement as a whole needed to think perhaps more deliberately about the essentially political nature of religion in this country. Could you talk could you talk more about that? How has your understanding of the political dimension of the interfaith movement changed in the past year? Yeah. So I should say that, you know, that's my own personal opinion mm. on um, on what it looks like, what politics and interfaith looks like. But I, I think as a whole, the interfaith movement is reconciling politics and religion right now as well. And I think we're all kind of figuring this out in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I think that that interfaith provides a really important model for politics moving forward. Interfaith at, at its core is about bringing people together who, who believe different things um, and creating common ground through the shared values that we hold. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that work is only going to continue to be important, not only in our houses of worship or on our college campuses, um, but in other broader community public spaces as well. Um, I, I really like this idea that I learned from or that I heard from Krista Tippett, who's a uh, the host of On Being with Krista Tippett podcast radio program, as well as Ibu Patel, who's the founder of Interfaith Youth Corps. Um, and they were speaking just last November, right before the election on a panel um, discussing diversity and disagreement uh, in America. And they made the point that, um, you know, we need to not only talk about the common ground that we have, that we need to have, 
but we need to talk about the common life that we share because common ground is something we can, we can choose to build. Um, but the common life is inevitable. That is, that is a reality that we have. Um, and so how do we talk about the common life that we share together? So you, you mentioned, uh, you, you just mentioned Ibu Patel in particular, and I, I think you, you've done a bit of work with him, right? Um, yeah. He, he's a major, obviously he's a major figure in interfaith. How do you know him and what have you learned from him? What have you taken from your interactions uh, uh, with him? Yeah. So I was actually exposed to interfaith work through Ibu Patel several years ago during my undergraduate at Elma College. I went to an Interfaith Leadership Institute, which is what Ibu Patel's organization, IFYC, Interfaith Youth Corps, hosts every year for college students to kind of get the introduction into what interfaith is and how they can organize. Um, So I did that in my undergrad, meaning uh, that I became an IFYC alum afterward. And so that's that's the capacity that I've continued to engage with Interfaith Youth Corps. I'm on their Alumni Speakers Bureau, so I go around to college campuses, and I'm also a trainer for them at their Interfaith Leadership Institutes now. Um, and so, so I've kind of been around that IFYC world, which is just an incredible part of the interfaith movement in the United States um, for several years now. And I've really appreciated watching how Ibu Patel's message and Interfaith Youth Corps' message has developed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that following, they do a good job at following the trends of religious life in America. So anyone who kind of, who follows uh, religion in the public life has seen the trends around increasing um, non-religious people mm. in the millennial generation, especially. So the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Um, Right, right. (laughs) Uh, So there are more and more people who are leaving uh, religion or or kind of unaffiliating from it in some way. And I think that uh, the interfaith movement has done a good job at like kind of keeping up with that and making sure that there is space for the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, to have a voice within interfaith dialogues, even if they might not come at it from a specific Catholic perspective or Buddhist perspective. Um, even people who are, who give answers like, well, I'm, I'm sort of this, but I also have a little bit of this and I don't know really what I believe. There's still space for them within, uh, within interfaith work. Um, but at the same time, I, I think another thing that, uh, interfaith youth Corps has been good at, at really bringing, um, into their work is, the ideas of intersectionality that a lot of campuses um, have been talking more and more about in the last several years. So recognizing that we can't talk about identity in a vacuum. We can't only talk about someone's religious, spiritual, or secular identity. We also have to talk about gender and race and sexual orientation. um, And that with that fuller sense of identity and the intersections. Um, it makes interfaith work a little more complicated, but a lot uh, richer as well. Yeah. So um, with with the rise, I'm, I'm so glad you bring that up. I was planning to ask with, with the rise of 
of the term and the understanding of intersectionality in this cultural conversation on identity, the emphasis does seem to be on the this sort of new set of challenges and possibilities um, in this understanding of identity, wherein a person doesn't just have, say, a race or a gender or religion, but has necessarily all of these three things and they're bound up in really complicated textured ways. Um, is it is it harder, based on this understanding, is it harder to get people to sit down of different faiths to sort of commune together when in large part the emphasis is in fact on the complexity of identity? Or have you found that people are in fact more sort of in tune with or sensitive to the complex identity of another and so they treat that person with a kind of respect they might not have before? Hmm. Well, I think that using an intersectional lens in interfaith dialogues, at least when it comes to the college campuses that I've worked on, um, it actually brings more people into the conversation. I think that, you know, connecting this back to what I was saying earlier about the trend of more people being non-religious or holding ambiguous faith identities or non-faith identities. Um, some people might not know where their place is within an interfaith conversation because they don't have a label or a belief system or a tradition to put on it. Um, but I think intersectional spaces allow for people to enter into that space in a variety of other ways as well, where we're, we're not saying like, leave that part of yourself at the door. We're saying, bring that part of yourself with you. Mm. Um, and I think that that has, it's definitely changed the face of, and the kind of trajectory of how our interfaith dialogues, how dialogues have evolved. But I think that it's created um, a more authentic engagement with this idea that we always talk about, which is building, um, building common ground for the common good. So you've written a lot, not new, but certainly emergent category of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, none being like a person who would check the box on the form that's next to no religious affiliation or something. What generally interests you about this group and where do they fit into the question of interfaith understanding in, you know, this, this new sort of 21st century epoch? Yeah, I love talking about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because there is so much diversity within that group. There, I, I think it's it's kind of funny that we've put this umbrella term um, onto this identity group, but there's there's a lot of different ways that someone can can fall into that category. So it's anyone from being atheist and agnostic um, to someone who might believe in God but not affiliate with a tradition connected to that belief, um, or someone who just isn't sure or doesn't care. Um, so there's a lot of variety within that experience of nuns. Um, and we're seeing more and more, especially um, generationally with millennials, more and more people resonating with that experience or that um, that kind of uncertain belief or tradition perspective. Um, and I mean, a lot of that comes from my own understanding of my, my own experience of being non non-religious or unaffiliated, um, knowing how much I've gained from interfaith spaces and wanting 
other nuns to be able to enter into the space and and learn from uh, from that space as well. But it also a lot of my interest comes from knowing how much religious communities can learn from nuns in exchange. Um, I think something that's been interesting is that what I experience in Grand Rapids is a lot of religious leaders or pastors or priests who are very interested in figuring out why so many young people are leaving their tradition. Um, and I think that there's a healthy way for them to ask, um, what is it that we are lacking in our religious communities that caused you to leave? And how can we um, engage with your with your generation or with nuns, unaffiliated folks in authentic ways. Um, and there's been, I think, a lot of rich exchange from that, um, where it's not only non-religious folks learning from religious communities, but the religious communities are actually learning a lot from non-religious folks as well. So you just you mentioned that you are yourself a nun, um, n o n e. Uh, you said, you said, <laughs> you said you were raised, um, Catholic. Could you talk a bit about like, so, so when, when did you start thinking of yourself as a person who didn't really have any specific religious affiliation? You know, what brought that decision about if it was a sort of discrete decision, that's the case. What got you interested in interfaith? Yeah. So I think my story is probably similar to a lot of millennial nuns at ONES. When I was raised in West Michigan and Muskegon, I was raised Catholic, um, but it was really only something that I did on Sundays with family if I really had to. It wasn't something that was integrated into my daily life. Um, and so when I was 14, uh, going through confirmation, it became very easy for me to just um, leave the tradition when I decided that it wasn't right for me um, because it wasn't a very big part of my life. I, I often say I was raised vaguely Catholic, and so then I became vaguely non-religious after that. Um, but what really kind of sparked my leaving was reading a lot of uh, new perspectives that I hadn't read before. So um, I read, you know, Carl Sagan, I think, being the most um, prominent person at the time, um, and learning more about how he kind of found a sense of meaning from understanding the universe, um, rather than finding a sense of meaning out of religion, was something that really appealed to me as I would often kind of just go to the beach and stare at the sunset or the dunes and just wonder about how this all existed. I think that, um, Carl Sagan's kind of philosophy resonated with me more than the Catholic um, theology did. So anyway, so I, I left uh, kind of that religious identity behind. But then in college, I started to study political science and religion kept on coming up in these interesting ways. Um, I studied uh, Israel and Palestine and the conflict there and came to understand um, the role that religious communities played um, in that conflict, as well as in conflict resolution. I traveled to northern India, and I got to see, you know, all of these incredible, real, uh, beautiful religious traditions, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, the Baha'i faith, 
and more. And I got to see how those traditions were living out their values in the community, uh, in the communities around them in these really important ways. And so I started to recognize that while I might personally be non-religious, I don't exist in a vacuum away from religion and away from faith. Um, so I, I mean, I do interfaith work, even though I'm non-religious, because I recognize that religion is this really powerful force in our communities and in our society. And I want to be a part of helping that cultural influence be one that is collaborative, that does work toward the common good and bring people together. So your description of, of like uh, coming to like Carl Sagan is so interesting and compelling, and in part because you know I think often when people think about figures like Carl Sagan, or say I, I may be conflating two different kinds of of scientists, scientists or like uh, uh, worldviews here, but like Carl Sagan or Richard Dawkins, these these are often like like scientists who are held in opposition to religious believers, like the like the philosophy that they propound, like the attitude that they propound toward. The universe is is one that's supposed to be fascinated with the fact that, in a sense, it is godless, or that like the like we can find meaning now in um, the immensity of the universe rather than in a a belief in some personal god. So what? So it's it's just so interesting that you looked at that and and thought, oh, this is this is a worldview that's compelling to me and that could not be held opposed to religious belief, but in fact be brought in, into dialogue with religious belief and vice versa. So I'm, I'm sort of wondering, like, what, what do you think a sort of Carl Saganite could learn from uh, an explicitly religious believer and vice versa? Yeah, well, Carl Sagan is such an interesting example because something that I learned about him more recently is that he was actually like quite the interfaith advocate himself. Hmm. Um, so, you know, his role as a scientist, he, he derived his sense of meaning and his sense of his role in the world from his um, engagement in, in science um, and physics. And uh, one thing that he really, I think, made an impact on that we don't talk about as often um, was his role in bringing religious leaders together around climate change, um, I think in the 1980s. And so, you know, he as a scientist, um, you know, saw what was happening in our world and global warming. And he also recognized that religious communities are a huge force to um, mobilize uh, folks across uh, communities. And so he actually worked and advocated with religious leaders from various traditions to come out with statements and um, support for uh, policies that uh, that address climate change. Um, and so I think that there's a variety of, of concerns that scientists or non-religious folks can bring to the table that are of great interest, not only to their own community, not only to the science community, or secular community, but to all of us, um, especially when it comes to something like climate change, or um, or as Christians would call it, I think creation care. Um, you know, the earth is something we all share, and particularly secular humanist uh, philosophies do a good job, I think, at advocating for um, 
for issues like this because they recognize that, um, you know, this is the only existence we have and we have to make sure that we uh, take care of uh, take care of it right now because this is all there is. So, so we have we have Carl Sagan then, but I, I also recall that you've ri- you've written about you've also talked about your um, admiration for uh, the Catholic Dorothy Day. Uh, could you talk a bit about Day? What 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 interests you about her? Yeah. So when I was raised Catholic, Dorothy Day was never someone that I heard about. Um, and I think that they often, I've heard, I've heard said that, um, Catholic social teaching is one of the best kept secrets of the Catholic church. And I, that certainly resonates with me. Um, but Dorothy Day is this great example of, um, of someone who really put her faith into her daily actions and radically, I think, changed her life based on her religious convictions in a way that really helped others. Um, So there's a story of Dorothy Day. So for listeners who don't know, Dorothy Day started the Catholic Workers Movement in, I believe, the 1920s or 30s, around the time of the Great Depression. And uh, she started houses of hospitality that uh, were places where people who were poor could come and eat and spend time and uh, kind of recuperate. And so she did these very, I think, seemingly small things that led to a really significant impact where houses of hospitality spread across the country. And a lot of her motivation for this came from her upbringing Um, And she was living with her family in San Francisco when I think the earthquake of 1906 happened. Um, And so she saw this huge destruction occur all around her. Um, And there's a story of like little Dorothy Day going outside and seeing the destruction, seeing the rubble and noticing how many people were just out there helping each other and how the earthquake really caused um, communities to come together to support one another, um, to go the extra mile and make sure that everyone was doing okay. And uh, she kind of had this idea lingering in her after that, where she wanted to be able to create spaces where it was easier for people to be kind to one another. And that was why she, um, you know, ultimately, Uh, kind of immersed herself into the Catholic faith because she saw um, that tradition as one that first and foremost advocates and and stands with the poor and the oppressed. Um, And someone who, you know, I think uh, so, I I think that Dorothy Day is someone who completely unapologetically um, lives out her beliefs and values in a way that's very countercultural and very refreshing for me to see um, someone who's not just like lukewarm Catholic, but like really committed and living out those values. I have a question about that, and I'll put it this way, though I feel somewhat awkward doing so. I'm not quite sure why. Um, do you think that, and I think this question is important when one lives as we do in a secular society or in a society in which religion is separated from? but not necessarily always independent from political life. Do you think that uh, Dorothy Day's spirit of charity, 
do you think that can be separated somehow from her religious belief or do you think it was directly produced by and dependent on her religious belief that might be an impossible question to answer but i it's it's got it's got to be something that people in the interfaith community do ask yeah certainly so um for i mean from everything i've read and known about dorothy day i think that her public life was inextricable from her faith life um, and I think that that's something that uh, is might be difficult for us to understand in an age where we usually see religion in, in our public life around movements like the religious right um, or movements that are uh, kind of putting religious and faith identities into, into politics in sometimes an aggressive and exclusive way. Um, I think that it's, it causes a a kind of a challenge around this idea of, um, kind of public theology. So what does it look like to live out our beliefs and convictions in a way in, in public? And I think that as long as we do so in a way that remains inclusive of those who don't hold the same convictions, um, then I, I think it's okay because it's it's hard to separate that if if you um, consider yourself a person of deep faith, um, it's hard to separate that from from what you do in the in your in your political life as well. And so, if there's a way that we can appreciate that um, and encourage you know an understanding of that that is expansive or inclusive, then we might have a, you know, meaningful, I think, political life as well. So you've, you've, you've talked about how the millennial generation and the sort of emergent nun generation, um, because they've, they seem to have on the whole kind of embraced this notion of intersectionality, um, and of, of, of bridging, of focusing on, but also trying to bridge difference. Do you think that the cultural conversation around religion and uh, interfaith understanding will move in the direction you're describing that is from a kind of aggressive and exclusive uh, ethic to one that is more inclusive? I hope so. I mean, I, I think that's the goal of what a lot of us are doing that work in the interfaith field. Um I mean, what we see through media and through politics is that religion is spoken of and used in a way that is um, weaponizing or violent, um, and and religion is usually only brought up when it's uh, kind of negative or um, you know thinking about in in media and journalism what bleeds leads. And so when we hear about religion in the news, it's usually connected to religious violence or extremism. But I think that that's not the only reality that exists. I think there's also this reality that religion is a part of people's daily lives and like lived experiences in a way that's incredibly um, life-giving and leading to cooperation and collaboration and the common good. Um, And I think that, I mean, one of my biggest goals 
within the interfaith movement is to tell that side of the story, to show that religion is something that is bringing people together, um, that is actually addressing religious violence in a way that builds coalitions across our religious differences. And so I think that as we get better at telling that story and at hearing and really listening to those stories, I think that it will become slowly but surely more culturally normal to understand religion in that way um, as, a, as a thing to bring us together rather than something to, to build barriers between us. Katie Gordon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Oh, thank you, Joe. This was great. That was Katie Gordon, program manager of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.